0: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS today. This is the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 2nd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's read today's weather forecast, this coming from KCRG. The wind shift experienced by yesterday's cold front will set up a somewhat cooler day for Friday, when highs will only reach the low to mid-40s. With a bit of an easterly breeze to go with it, things will feel more like the 20s or 30s for much of the day. Still, with normal highs closer to 30 for this time of year, this is certainly better than it could be. A few more clouds are likely at times today. This weekend is looking downright decent, with highs bouncing back toward the mid to upper 40s and overnight lows in the low 30s. Clouds will vary with a little potential for some sunshine on Saturday, with cloudier skies possible to wrap up the weekend on Sunday. Not a bad set of days to get out and about, though. The early portion of next week shows little to no change, with partly cloudy skies and highs in the mid to upper 40s. Overnight lows may be a little bit chillier in the upper 20s, but conditions generally stay quiet and pleasant. Our weather pattern could turn a bit more active by later next week, with a chance for some rain by Thursday into Friday. At this point, it appears that things will be warm enough to keep the precipitation liquid, but we'll be keeping an eye on any potential changes to this over the next several days. It's still February, after all. Now we turn to Iowa news from The Courier. The incredibly true story of how an Iowa realtor purchased a home made famous by Babe Ruth. The story was written by Earl Horlick of the Sioux City Journal. The story begins with a color photograph of real estate agent Ashley Divis, and she's holding up a giant photograph in black and white which shows Babe Ruth standing in front of the home that she bought. Out to the story. In September 1927, Babe Ruth wasn't just one of the best-known baseball players in America. He was probably as celebrated as any movie star or head of state. After all, the outfielder for the World Series champion New York Yankees was having a spectacular year, hitting a record-breaking 60 home runs in a single season. So what did Ruth, who was nicknamed both the Great Bambino and the Sultan of Swat, Due to celebrate his victories, he won on what had been called the mother of all barnstorming tours and a three-week victory lap. This included a stopover at Sioux City, Iowa, home of John Donahue, owner of a livestock company and a local promoter of sorts. Donahue was known to his friends as Jigs. met with sports agent Christy Walsh. Together, The two men arranged an engagement for Ruth, as well as his teammate Lou Gehrig, who had been selected the American League's most valuable player, to play an exhibition game at Sioux City Stockyards Park, a mere ten days after the Yanks swept the Pittsburgh Pirates to win the World Series. While the teammates were in town, they were invited to meet Donahue's six young children, a home with a storied past. Indeed, the visit by Ruth and Gehrig, a.k.a. the Iron Horse, has been immortalized in a black-and-white photograph that was taken in the backyard of the Donahue family's home. Nearly a century later, the house is instantly identifiable by its brick exterior and second-floor balcony. The first floor even has the same windows that are original to the house, Ashley Divis who currently resides in the home with her teenage children, said, quote, The tree in the photograph is long gone, but I'm guessing the backyard is remarkably similar to the way it looked in 1927, unquote. Divis, a realtor with Remax experience, had no idea about her home's historical significance when she purchased it nearly four years ago. Quote, All I knew was that it was built around 1915, and had plenty of old-fashioned character, she explained. That is, until Divis performed a Google search on her home's colorful past, riding the rails with the Bambino. Quote, I found several stories that had chronicled Babe Ruth's Sioux City visit, she said. This included a chapter in The Big Fella: Babe Ruth, and the World He Created, a book by former Washington Post sports writer Jane Levy. According to Levy's book, published in 2018, Ruth traveled by train to several Midwestern cities, including Kansas City, where he was photographed holding a black baby at the Wheatley-Provident Hospital for Negro Children. Levy said this created a storm of controversy during the less enlightened 1920s. After that, Ruth and Gehrig appeared at exhibition games and community events and Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, and, finally, Sioux City. In October 18, 1927's Sioux City Journal, the headline read, 5,000 Sioux City fans see Babe Ruth hit homer. Ruth and a team of area baseball players donned uniforms with the name Bustin' Babes, while Gehrig and another batch of Siouxlanders took the field as the Larapin Lou's. Indeed, this was how Ruth and Gehrig were dressed when they were guests at the home of Jiggs Donahue, his wife Joe, and their children Jimmy, Phil, Jack, Kenny, and four-month-old twins Tommy and Joanne. Divis showed an enlarged photograph of Gehrig, the Donahue kids, as well as an incongruous Ruth sitting on top of a pony. Quote, when you think of Babe Ruth, you think of him as being a strapping man, Divis said, taking a close look at the photo. Maybe it's the angle of the camera, but Babe doesn't look that big here, unquote. On a closer inspection, Ruth also looks very uncomfortable on Molly, which was the name of the Donahue children's pet pony. Quote, Babe doesn't look happy on the pony, and the pony doesn't look happy with Babe on his back, Divis noted with a smile. Always a bit of a history buff, Divis was intrigued at the thought of two legendary members of the New York Yankees' famous Murders Row in her backyard, however briefly. She was also amazed at how well the incident was chronicled. For the sake of this story, Divis borrowed the photograph of Ruth on top of the pony from its permanent home at the Sioux City Arena Sports Academy. Quote, I believe the arena got it from the Sioux City Public Museum, she said. A soiree as seen on TV. Incredibly enough, there is even sixteen millimeter film of Ruth and Gehrig's visit to the Donahue's home. Clips from the film can be seen in quote When It Was a Game too and Babe Ruth, which were documentaries broadcast on HBO in the nineteen nineties. Hoping to learn more about the long ago party, Ivis reached out to the only surviving Donahue child a few years ago. Quote, I spoke briefly to Joanne Donahue Sanderson, who, with her twin Tommy, was the youngest of the Donahue children, she said. Quote, Joanne was very nice to talk to, but she was only four months old when Ruth and Gehrig came to the house. Still, it was part of the Donahue family lore for generations to come. Quote, Can you imagine what it must have been like to have two of the best-known men in America in your backyard for an afternoon party? Divis said, shaking her head in amazement. Joanne remembered being told that they were very friendly and funny. A house with character, both inside and out. Judging by the home's exquisite crown molding, hardwood floors, and elaborate fireplace, the Donahue's home was likely a showplace back in the day. John Donahue was a prominent business owner in the livestock field when the Sioux City stockyards was very prominent, Davis said. I'm guessing he was well-to-do. Having a house on Sioux City's upper north side was very prestigious. Quote, Nowadays, people buy houses on the north side of town because the homes are older and have plenty of character, Davis said. Back in the 1920s, This was a new section of Sioux City. People were buying houses here because they were recently built, where memories and history were made. Divis said she chose the house because of its old-fashioned charm. You can tell how well the Donahue family and every subsequent resident maintained the integrity of this house, she said. Divis also speculates that the home has been the site of many happy memories though perhaps none so famous as when the Sultan of Swat and the pride of the Yankees came by for a visit. Quote, Every time I look out my window, I can say, Oh, that's probably where Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig once stood, Davis said. That's pretty cool. (laughs) The Kings of Swag bring bling to Eastern Iowa home and landscaping show this weekend. In Waterloo, Mark and Matt Harris of Storage Wars, better known as the Kings of Swag, will be presenters at this year's Eastern Iowa Home and Landscaping Show, Friday through Sunday. The show takes place downtown at the Waterloo Convention Center, 200 West 4th Street. Hours are 3 to 8 p.m. Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday. Admission is $7 in advance and $10 at the door. Advance tickets can be purchased online at www.easterniowahomeshow.com. The 72nd Annual Show is billed as a one-stop shop for the latest products, trends, and area experts in residential home design, needs as well as featuring exhibits by home builders, remodelers, interior designers, landscapers, and more. The Harris brothers will talk fashion, design, food, and being in the spotlight during their seminars at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. Saturday and 2 p.m. on Sunday. The identical twins are Los Angeles natives who teamed up to create the celebrity giving company, WOW Creations. For nearly a decade, the duo has provided gift bags for the Oscars, Emmys, and Grammys, ABC's The Bachelor, Kentucky Derby, Sundance Film Festival, Miss Universe, Miss USA, Soul Train Awards, and numerous festivals and events. In addition, they are stars of A&E's Storage Wars, Judge Beauty pageants, and are working on their own reality show and a documentary about their lives. Other seminars will include a do-it-yourself class in paper flower design at 5 p.m. Friday and 3 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, featuring Sherry Collins, storage and kitchen design at 6 p.m. Friday, 4 p.m. Saturday, and 11 a.m. on Sunday, and interior design expectations at 1 p.m., presented by Fersen Design and Solar and Geothermal Heating Cooling at 7 pm friday 2 pm saturday and 1 pm sunday presented by robbie hardware next in an ag update farmers seek options as major land transfer looms in rolling cattle pastures in missouri in fertile cornfields in iowa and illinois on old homestead farms in nebraska and kansas the baby boomer generation remains a major force in American agriculture. This generation, defined as people born between 1946 and 1964, still farms and owns much of the farmland, or it might be owned by people from the previous generation. The average age of the American farmer continues to climb, and USDA references a study suggesting 70% of U.S. farmland Will change hands in the next 20 years. At the same time, starting a farming operation comes with monolithic costs, and farm groups, state legislators, and politicians in Washington are asking how they can help support beginning farmers and ranchers. For people who specialize in farm succession planning, this is a major question facing the farm industry. How can farm families make the transition to the next generation. University of Missouri Extension Ag Business Specialist Wesley Tucker says, Communication, communication, communication is the key to farm succession planning. Quote, I tell parents they have a responsibility to get this worked out before they die, he said. It will go so much smoother for the family if they have these conversations. Unquote finding farm successors. Mike Downey is on the executive team for Next Generation Ag Advocates, a group that works to help connect older farmers and landowners with beginning farmers to operate their land. Downey says the group was started by two Iowa farmers, one of whom had kids who did not want to farm the land. He worked to find someone who wanted to continue his operation, and now Next Generation Ag helps do that for farm families across the Midwest. Downey says this is a common challenge farmers deciding what to do with their operations when they don't have an heir who wants to farm. Quote, We're seeing more and more transitions like that occur in the industry, he says. Downey says the group also helps with farm succession planning within families when kids do want to farm, but he says people without a farming heir might need more help. He says it is important to match the outgoing generation with young people who fit their goals and philosophies for farming, personality, and finances. These arrangements can look different depending on the situation and can be gradual transition over years. They can involve leasing farmland to younger generations or in some cases eventually selling it to them. Downey says the gradual approach helps both sides, as the older landowning generation can spread out tax liability, and the younger generation can gradually take on more and more without having to fund everything right away. Quote, it usually presents win-win advantages for both sides, he says. Downey says it's very helpful for young farmers to have an in to help them get started and that the old days of starting a farming operation up from nothing are hard to fathom with today's land and equipment costs. Quote, by far the number one barrier to getting started in farming is just the capital required, he says, step by step. Tucker says for farm succession planning, a gradual approach can be good. He proposes a five-step roadmap where successors seek experience An education away from the farm, work for a trial period on the farm, begin taking management and ownership responsibilities, accept advanced management and ownership responsibilities, and then become the majority manager and owner. Quote, there's so many benefits to that, he says. Train the younger generation with a little more responsibility and a little more responsibility along the way. Also, This gradual approach can be good for the aging farmers. Tucker says other industries celebrate retirement, but for farmers who identify strongly with the profession, it can be a challenge. But gradually training a successor can help preserve that identity and give them hope and excitement for the future of their farm. A farmer fears retirement because if I'm not a farmer, what am I? Tucker says. That gradually stepping away is so much better for their mental health. They can say, I'm still a farmer, but I'm just helping my kids take on more responsibility on the farm. Weighing the options. Tucker says for farmers who don't have kids, who want to farm their land, the process still involves thinking about what they want for the future of their farm. Quote, they have to ask, am I okay with the business I've built being dismantled, he says? Tucker says many farmers don't want that, and so if their kids don't want to farm, they might look for a young farmer in the area who wants to farm the land. They can set up rental agreements or future sales agreements, generating income for their heirs, while also ensuring the land will continue as a farming operation. Tucker says he thinks there's going to be more and more of this type of arrangement. He says, farmers should also think about whether they want to allow their heirs to sell a family farm immediately or stipulate they keep it and have an income stream from it. Quote, Are you doing your kids a favor or a disservice to leave them a couple of million dollars versus leaving them an asset they can get income off, he says? Helping older farmers find these partnerships and set up succession plans is a key issue, Downey says. Quote, It's no secret the age of farmers and landowners are the oldest in history, he says. 68% of farmers have children but don't have children who actually farm. Half of those have not identified a successor. Rewarding work. Downey says it's a fulfilling feeling to help farm families preserve their operations and make plans for their land to continue to be farmed in a way they want. He says it's important to him to preserve family farms, as his family was recognized at last year's Iowa State Fair for having a farm in the family for over 150 years. Quote, the legacy part of it hits home for me, he says. Tucker says the coming years and decades will bring a lot of asset rollover, and it will be helpful to think of farmers as part of a bigger picture, likening a family farm to a team Olympic event rather than an individual competition. A family business is a team competition, he says. He says it's important for farmers and rural small businesses to manage this transition well to support healthy rural communities going forward. Quote, if we don't do this well, it's going to affect our rural communities, Tucker says. (laughs) Waterloo High School merger meeting offers answers, and raises concerns. Story written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin. Dateline Waterloo. More than 100 area residents met at the Waterloo Career Center Thursday night to learn more about the proposed merger of East, West, and Expo High Schools into a single new building at the site of Central Middle School. It was the second in a series of community meetings sponsored by the Waterloo Community School District, to inform the public and answer questions about a proposed $165 million new high school. Before the presentation, many of the attendees were skeptical about the plan. Quote, I think this plan is a way to avoid taxpayers' voice. It's a way to spend our money without giving us a real word in it. I believe they have their mind totally made up and this town hall is just a dog and pony show, said Forrest Dillavoo, a longtime Waterloo resident. Superintendent Jared Smith gave a 20-minute overview of the proposal and outlined the importance of co-locating the new school with the Waterloo Career Center, which is a part of the central campus. Quote, Kids that have exposure to classes at the Career Center have a lot better chance at being highly successful in high school, Smith said. He said having to travel from east or west to the career center can be a hindrance for some students. Quote, Travel time to and from the WCC, as well as student not being in their home high school, has led to some major barriers for students that want to have access to these programs, Smith said. Attendees then split into small groups centering on particular aspects of the merger. Most met with Kate Payne and Brad Leeper of Envision Architecture about building possibilities. Discussions in the small groups occasionally became heated. One person became agitated and slammed something down, demanding to be allowed to speak. After 30 minutes, Smith disbanded the small groups and he and staff members Answered general questions for around 15 minutes before offering a tour of the career center. Most attendees found the meeting to be helpful. Ted Letterman, who had posed questions about the project at Monday's school board meeting, was also at Thursday's town hall. He was in a small group that met with Jeff Sommerfeldt, Waterloo School's chief financial officer. He said he was impressed with Thursday's presentation. Quote, they had good answers to all of my questions. Everything was well done. I'm more in favor of it now than what I was before, Letterman said. Emily Redmond, a Waterloo mother whose three children would be part of the first graduation classes at the new high school, said she sees the benefits of a merged school. Quote, I think it would bring more togetherness and better opportunities, Redmond said. We live right by Central. So I often see high schoolers carpooling and driving to go to the career center. It would be nice for them to have everything in one spot. Unquote. Waterloo schools will be hosting two more community meetings on the proposed high school merger, at 9 a.m. Saturday at Poignier Elementary, and from 5 to 6 p.m. Thursday at Dr. Walter Cunningham School for Excellence. <laughs> cedar valley interfaith council holding free mental health program dateline waterloo the cedar valley interfaith council is sponsoring a free program about mental health awareness Quote, emotional sanctuaries how faith communities can promote mental health will be presented from 2 to 4 p.m on february 4th at the waterloo center for the arts The event will feature a keynote address along with three presentations, each touching on a different aspect of the intersection of faith and mental health. Dr. Sharon Duclos, co-medical director of People's Community Health Clinic, will give a keynote speech titled, Mental Health Resources for Moderate to Severe Illness, Regardless of Income. Dr. Naomi McCormick, a retired clinical psychologist, will address... Mental Health Benefits of Religion. The Reverend Emma Peterson of Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists will deliver a presentation on how pastors and faith communities can help. Dr. Rodney Dyser, a licensed mental health counselor at the University of Northern Iowa professor, will speak on developing self-care plans to increase mental (sighs) well-being. Mayor Quentin Hart Given award at national mayors conference, dateline Waterloo. The U.S. Conference of Mayors gave Mayor Quinton Hart an award during its annual meeting in January. The Mayoral Service Award was presented as part of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission's Dream Keeper Initiative, which states it was created to foster hope and inspire African Americans to dream boldly. Beginning his fifth term, Hart is the longest-serving mayor in Waterloo and the first African-American to hold that office. During his acceptance speech, Hart highlighted Waterloo Fiber, the city's new broadband initiative. In high school girls' basketball, sharpshooting Grace Knudsen having an electric senior season. This story was written by Jim Nelson. Dateline Cedar Falls When Grace Knutson talks about putting up a million practice shots, she might be talking in general terms. But Cedar Falls head girls basketball coach Greg Gruen doesn't doubt that Knutson, during her four years with the Tigers, has put up a million practice shots. Last Friday, in a 57-27 win over Ames at home, Knutson scored 18 points, moving past her former Tiger great Emerson Green, into fifth all-time in Cedar Falls career scoring list at 1,299 and counting. It has been a big season and a big last 10 days for Knudsen, the Drake University commit, who is averaging a career-best 24.4 points per game. Quote, what a lot of people don't understand is this didn't just happen for Grace, Gruen said. "It's." the unforeseen hours. Nobody knows how much time she has spent in the gym making herself become a good shooter, unquote. And just how good of a shooter has Knutson become? Already the career three-pointer made leader in school history, Knutson has made 210 and counting in her career. Her sharp shooting abilities were no better displayed than on January 20th, in an 83-43 victory over Iowa City West at home. The focus now is on the four remaining games for the Tigers, who beat Cedar Rapids Jefferson Tuesday night. Quote, We talk about never getting too high or too low, Knutson said. We have to stay true to who we are, keep playing the game we play. We will see what happens, but we need to remain confident. Unquote. And now, listeners, We just want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 2nd, on IRIS, that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled Restraining Cruelty. Texas defied the authority of the U.S. Supreme Court by moving to install more razor wire in the Rio Grande River after the court ruled 5-4 to four last week that federal authorities could remove the deadly barricades. The high court found that federal agents were being denied access to the border, by the state barricade, and thus could not do their jobs. Texas officials dismissed the ruling. It refuses to let the Border Patrol get to the river at Eagle Pass. The Texas Military Authority, which oversees the National Guard under Governor Greg Abbott, said it continues to hold a line in Shelby Park to deter and prevent unlawful entry into the state of Texas. Abbott is thumbing his nose at the rule of law, thinking that he rules his own republic. The razor wire is cruel and inhumane. It harms wildlife. It limits the ability of the Border Patrol to monitor and use the river to enforce the law. The Supreme Court ruling is temporary, while the matter is heard at a federal appeals court on February seventh. It was heartening that five justices imposed human decency for a few weeks and put one of the 50 states in its place. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate is reportedly working on another bipartisan approach to border security and immigration with the support of the Biden administration. It might be another pipe dream that gets vaporized by the House Freedom Caucus, the swelling number of people at the border, the drownings in the Rio Grande, the homeless people in New York and Chicago and Denver, screams for a response in the spirit of America welcoming the refugee. This next editorial comes from the New York Times. They'll take the Travis Kelsey, hairdo that is. Not since Jennifer Aniston has a haircut become so popular. Barbers in America and abroad are being inundated with requests for the Travis Kelsey. This was written by Allison Kruger. Jeffrey Dugas, who cuts hair at Obsidian Barbers in New Brunswick, Canada, has received a very specific request from clients in the past few weeks. They want the same style as Travis Kelsey. Quote, They usually come in with a picture of him, Mr. Dugas said. I'm like, yeah, I know who that is, unquote. This is not the first time Mr. Dugas has been asked to replicate the hairstyles of celebrities. Quote, When Bryce Hall was popular on TikTok and had that long curly fringe in the front, all the kids were getting it, he said, referring to social media personality with almost 25 million followers on TikTok. Mr. Kelsey's hairstyle, a buzz cut fade, is easy to replicate. Quote, It's basically zero on the side until you get to the top, he said. It's a fun, easy haircut that I can do in a quick 20 minutes. But the sheer number of customers asking for it astounds him. Last week, he said he had at least 50 people come in for that haircut, he said. That's a crazy, crazy amount. He attributes the demand to not only the fact that Mr. Kelsey is dating Taylor Swift, but also because his brother, Jason Kelsey, had a viral, certless moment at the Chiefs versus Bills game. Mr. Dugas is hardly the only barber getting these requests. Across the world, not just the country, men are replicating Mr. Kelsey's hairstyle, claiming it attracts positive attention from friends and love interests and gives them more confidence, though some say it is hard to maintain. It needs to be rebuzzed every two to four weeks, according to Mr. Dugas, or too airy to keep warm during winter. While barbers are excited their clients feel passionate about a particular style, some worry not everyone can actually pull this look off. Quote, every canvas can't take every type of hair, said Nigel Miller, a barber at Fresh Avenue Grooming and Style in Birmingham, Alabama. Quote, the Travis Kelsey haircut looks good on more square-type head shapes and people with stronger jaws, Unquote. It's also a haircut that can really change someone's look. People who come in and get it, a lot of times they have long, straight hair, and it's a drastic transformation, Mr. Miller added. Fortunately, so far everyone he has given the cut to has liked it. Quote, if they didn't, they didn't tell me to my face, Unquote. Mr. Miller started getting requests for the look in September when Ms. Swift first appeared at a Chiefs game. He predicted that more people will want it now that the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. Those who have gotten Mr. Kelsey's haircut said it is attention-grabbing. Cole Sterling, 21, a professional boxer in Tampa, buzzed off his long, fluffy hair as soon as the news broke that Mr. Kelsey was with Ms. Smith. Quote, I was like, maybe I will try this haircut, and maybe I will get my own Taylor Swift, he said. He is still single, but it definitely caused him to interact with more people. Quote, At first, when I got it buzzed, at least three times a week people said, I look like Travis Kelsey. He said, It's kind of grown out, but I'll have to get it done again, hopefully next week. Tyson Schilling, 21, a college student, who plays football for Texas A&M University Commerce, said the haircut won him nicknames from teammates, including Little Travis and Cavers Telsey. They said I had an alter ego, he said. Quote, the girls also love it, he added. At bars, I would get a lot of compliments and on social media. It was a pretty big hit. Not all women in his life liked it immediately. Quote, at first my mom didn't like it. But then when I came home to visit, she said, it looks really good, he said, laughing. He got his hair cut in the fall, but has since let it grow out. Quote, it's kind of expensive to maintain because you have to get it cut so much to make it look nice and clean, he said. I guess this is the price you pay for looking handsome, unquote. Some barbers have been caught off guard by the requests. The first time a client asked a Mayor Stapleton, a barber at That Feeling in Potter's Bar, England, for Mr. Kelsey's look, he had to do some research. Quote, I had to Google Travis myself to find out who he was talking about, Mr. Stapleton said. Over the fall, Mr. Stapleton said he received 15 to 20 requests for the cut. But now he loves when clients ask for the look because it means they are excited about their hair. As he put it, Quote, it makes someone who doesn't really care about a haircut have something to say about it, Oh, well, Editor Art Cullen of the Stormleague Times-Pilot writes, For local control. Those of us old enough to recall when the Iowa Republican Party stood for local control of schools. It disturbs our nostalgia that the contemporary GOP controlling the statehouse has taken to prescribing specifically what shall not be taught, and how things are taught. Thou shalt not teach divisive concepts, for example. Up pops a bill this session, endorsed by the governor, that bans certain forms of reading instruction, and prescribes that children shall be taught on a system built around phonics. This should be unsettling to us steeped in the old-fashioned conservative principle of letting school boards and the superintendent decide what is taught and how, in consultation with teachers, curriculum directors, and principals. That was the system, apparently abandoned, that put Iowa number 1 in literacy for generations. It should make you nervous when legislators, some of whom have to have their clerks write their newsletters, decide how to teach reading and writing. Republican leaders assert a science-based reading protocol based on sounding out words, phonics. They want to ban other methods that teach reading based on context and meaning. It smacks of more politics and education and less local control. This is actually a topic where we have standing. We were taught in phonics by the good sisters who listened to no legislator, and we did well enough by it. We also were taught to read for context and meaning. That's what leads to comprehension. Certain methods work better with Johnny than they do with Susie. Teachers told legislators that they all prefer an all-of-the-above approach to teaching reading, which is what leads to clear writing. We should listen to the teachers, who actually are working with students and know what works. We should be skeptical of legislators who worked with students 30 years ago. The Iowa Department of Education sets curriculum standards under the governor's control. Legislation is unnecessary. Reynolds is eroding her own authority by endorsing it. Increasing reading comprehension is a multi-layered issue that starts with books and parents reading to children daily. It must receive adequate funding. We stress science and math often at the expense of reading, writing, the arts, and social studies. If we were to pass a law requiring that something be taught, it would be civics to every eighth grader. Teachers must receive support from, yes, area education agencies to provide support specialists. We must encourage children to write because it helps them read and vice versa. Phonics work. So does context so does taking the handheld device from their hands and replacing it with a book. Reading comprehension improves when students are at least exposed to another language. Their writing improves along with it. Reading and writing are not as simple as they sound. They are nuanced matters that involve mentors with an ability to understand what works and giving each child the attention they need. Ordering up a nifty reading answer that has no cost on its face, is irresistible. Trusting education professionals isn't a local setting. Storm Lake has different needs than Spencer, is what made Iowa the education state. That was effective conservatism. Now from the New York Times, opinion written by Nicholas Kristof, visiting the most important company in the world. Quote, If China takes Taiwan, They will turn the world off, potentially, Donald Trump told Fox News recently, apparently referring to a potential seizure of one company that is central to, well, pretty much everything. Indeed, it's arguably the most important company in the world. The company Trump alluded to, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, is the only corporation I can think of in history, that could cause a global depression if it were forced to halt production. These days, it seems impossible to have a conversation about geopolitics or economics without coming back to TSMC, which makes about 90% of the world's most advanced chips. If the lights went out here in Shinchu, in the company's ultra-clean and ultra-secure buildings, you might not be able to buy a new phone, car, or watch. Armies could run out of precision-guided missiles, and hospitals could struggle to replace advanced X-ray and MRI machines. It might be like the COVID-19 supply chain chip disruption times 10. And TSMC, unfortunately, is situated in a region where war is possible and could threaten production. Quote, Taiwan Semiconductor, is one of the best-managed companies and important companies in the world, Warren Buffett said last year. But he sold his $4 billion stake in TSMC because, he said, I don't like its location, unquote. Some believe, it appears this may be Trump's view, that TSMC is so valuable that it might tempt China to try to grab Taiwan and then bring the world to its knees. Quote, the more you talk about silicon, the less rational people become, Mark Liu, the chairman of TSMC, told me. So let's try to have a nuanced conversation about TSMC, its significance, and its vulnerabilities. For starters, TSMC's factories or fabs would probably be useless to China after an invasion, even if engineers remained on the job, and even if the fabs weren't bombed by American or Taiwanese defenders to keep them out of China's hands. That's because the chips are designed in other countries and require international networks to keep production going. To China, TSMC would be about as useful as a dead phone. What happens in these fabs, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the work is done by non union, unprotesting machines? Is astonishing. TSMC has transformed an industry that now measures its work in nanometers, billions of a meter. A human red blood cell is about 7,000 nanometers wide, and TSMC is now developing 1.4 nanometer chips. Quote, there's nothing like the TSMC plants, Matt Pottinger, a longtime Asia Hand who was a deputy national security advisor under Trump, told me, quote, it's really black magic, unquote. But the black magic requires enormous amounts of energy. TSMC single-handedly consumes perhaps 7% of Taiwan's electricity. And that creates a risk. Even if China couldn't take over TSMC fabs, it could disrupt production as a way of putting pressure on Taiwan and the West simply with cyber attacks on the grid quote it would be pretty easy for china to bring down the power networks pottinger said alternatively china could impose a partial blockade with the same effect either could quickly ripple through the global economy which means it would also ripple through china's economy tsmc chips are crucial inputs for chinese manufacturing So Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, and others have described the chip industry as Taiwan's silicon shield, meaning that China wouldn't dare attack because that would destroy its own economy. I'm as skeptical of this argument as I am of the notion that China will invade Taiwan to grab TSMC. The silicon shield reminds me of the 1909 best-selling book, The Great Illusion which was translated into 25 languages, and predicted that Europe was so economically interdependent that warfare was obsolete. World War One and World War Two killed its sales. It's definitely not optimal that the global economy depends on chips from an area vulnerable to earthquakes and war. That's one reason America is investing some $39 billion through the CHIPS Act. To manufacture chips domestically. But bringing a big chunk of advanced chip making back to America is already proving more difficult than passing the legislation. It's immensely challenging for America to replicate the ecosystem in Taiwan that supports chip manufacturing, from the expertise in constructing fabs to the companies that clean the gowns worn inside them. And America is plotting bureaucracy where it's harder and more expensive to get environmental approvals and building permits than it is in other countries. A sign of trouble. TSMC and Samsung have already had to delay plans for new plants in the United States. There's some uncertainty about how advanced those American-made chips will be, and 18 months after President Biden signed the Chips Act into law, the American subsidies are slow going out the door. And a cautionary tale. TSMC built a fab in Washington State in the late 1990s, and for many years it was an expensive headache. Quote, it was just a series of ugly surprises, Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, said on a podcast in 2022. Despite enormous effort and 25 years of experience, The costs of production at that plant are still 50% higher than in Taiwan, he added. Perhaps because he's 92 years old and retired, Chang is canted about the challenges of the American strategy. Quote, I think it will be a very expensive exercise in futility, he said of the U.S. efforts. Quote, The U.S. will increase onshore manufacturing of semiconductors somewhat, but all of that will be very high cost increase, high unit cost. It will be non-competitive in the world markets, unquote. Perhaps it makes sense for the United States to manufacture non-competitive chips to safeguard access to them. But let's recognize that there are trade-offs. The tens of billions of dollars spent on fabs, subsidies, would also boost American competitiveness if they were spent to reduce child poverty and improve American education. If Americans were as good at math as the Taiwanese, our fabs might work better too. Given how difficult it is to move production, the best way to safeguard the manufacturing of chips may be to work harder than ever to deter and avoid war in the Taiwan Strait. Now from the New York Times, we have a guest essay titled, we Were Wrong About What Happened to America in 2020. This was written by Eric Kleinenberg, who is the author of the forthcoming book, 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. Here's the essay. COVID numbers recently climbed again. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention once again reported monthly death tolls in the thousands. Mask mandates are back in New York City's public medical facilities and nursing homes. The presidential race has kicked into gear, and, just as in 2020, the stakes seem existential. It all makes me feel like I'm revisiting a past I never actually left. I'm not the only one wrestling with that feeling. In other ways, 2020 seems like another lifetime. The pandemic ended. We went on with our lives. Yet by considerable margins, people still say they feel alienated, vulnerable, unsafe. It's only now becoming clear how little we understood what the United States experienced during that unforgettable year and how deeply it shaped us. I've come to think of our current condition as a kind of long COVID, a social disease that intensified a range of chronic problems and instilled the belief that the institution's we'd been taught to rely on, are unworthy of our trust. The result is a durable crisis in American civic life. Just look at the election cycle we are about to fall into. It seems like the world turned upside down several times, and yet here we are facing the prospect of another contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, as though the country hasn't moved forward an inch. Everything changed, and yet almost nothing changed at all. Back in 2020, I learned about Daniel Presti, an affable and energetic 33-year-old who was trying to build a new business called Max Public House, just a few miles from his childhood home in Staten Island. Thanks, he said, to the inexplicably slow pace of the New York State Liquor Authority, it took nearly a year to open. But he and his business partner, Keith McArleny, used the time to make the bar the nicest it could be. The idea was to make Max a local commons. No political talk, no news on TV. Quote, Keith and I are the farthest from political you can find. Mr. Presty would later tell me, quote, we're not getting into it. In March, when COVID-19 hit New York City, the same state government that took ages to issue a liquor license needed just days to demand that the newly opened Max cease operations. Mr. Presty understood the threat and accepted the decision. What he didn't expect was that the pub would have to remain closed or restricted on and off for more than a year, nor that, because his business was new, the government would offer so little financial support. Mr. Presty spent the year in a state of anxiety and stress. No one in a position of power Would listen to his pleas for assistance, and the rules for bars and restaurants kept changing. His frustration was all too common on a wide range of outcomes, including many that were less visible at the time. This country fared much worse during the COVID pandemic than comparable nations did. Distrust, division, and disorganized leadership contributed to the scale of our negative health outcomes. As for our continuing distress, the standard explanation is a uniquely American loneliness. The Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, declared it an epidemic in its own right. The truth, however, is there's no good evidence that Americans are lonelier than ever. Our social patterns changed, of course. Yet, a major recent poll shows that older Americans are now significantly less lonely Than they were three years ago. A recent peer-reviewed study reports that middle-aged Americans describe themselves as less lonely than they were 20 years ago. Loneliness is more pervasive among younger Americans, but there too the rates have also plummeted since 2020. Logically, we should be feeling better. Why can't we shake this thing? Because loneliness was never the core problem. It was, rather, the sense among so many different people that they'd been left to navigate the crisis on their own. How do you balance all the competing demands of health, money, sanity? Where do you get tests, masks, medicine? How do you go to work or even work from home when your kids can't go to school? The answer was always the same. Figure it out. Stimulus checks and small business loans did help But while other countries built trust and solidarity, America, both during and after 2020, left millions to fend for themselves. Now the Biden administration is flummoxed by why Americans don't feel more optimistic, despite all the good economic news, and some conservative groups are frustrated that Republican voters remain loyal to a candidate who has been charged with 91 felony counts. Voters are refusing to behave the way some are telling them would be rational. But the inequities that the pandemic laid bare have only deepened over time. For millions of Americans, distrust feels like the most rational state. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 2nd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, You can access a recording of this reading of The Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.